I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. So, the last London. No, sorry, I got that wrong. It should be, so, the last London, because the inflection should be there at the end. I'm trying to teach myself the language of this last city, which every sentence begins with a so. It's as though as if you've dropped in on a dialogue, as if the conversation is still running. Somehow you've got in on it, and you have to keep it going. So has changed its nature a lot. When my uh, children were teenagers, so was so. <laughs> now it has these dots before and after, and it's a kind of a, a conversational flourish that lets you know that nothing has any real meaning we're losing the ground of London and what London is, and maybe we'll travel across and find out as we go on. I mean, it was a good preparation coming in here. So preparation, really, tonight uh, for what the world may become, passing through security was like trying to get somewhere near America. And as you came through that tent, I noticed there was a, an advert on the wall for one of the upcoming uh, BM shows, and at the bottom it had sponsored by Jack Ryan. And I thought he was played by Harrison Ford. And I thought that came with a kind of slightly sinister overtone. But it let us know the city we're in, which this is a, a multiple city, city of many shifts and changes, very hard to hold on to. And that so is now so gestural. It's like the equivalent of a, an Aussie sports person when they talk to always starts a sentence with look. Look, mate. It's like a challenge and a defense all in one. And it's the equivalent of the Trump poke. You know, the, 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 the thumb that's trying to pierce a donut. And so you're in the world now where this man, the, the King Ubu of the Internet, is out there haunting us. It's in this situation where any conspiracy theory fills the city, that the idea that it's all a, a plot by Putin, that he's some kind of a brainwashed spook. But the Manchurian candidate is now not out to assassinate the president, he's become the president. <laughs> he's surrounded by um, a coven of uh, death-dealing pro-lifers and fleshed oxymorons which are drifting into a travelling shot of London. I think I'm moving in now across the city in a trajectory down Bethnal Green Road towards the overground station at Shoreditch. And I see a notice in a window that says, no coffee stored overnight. <laughs> you know, you used to get the white vans nervous about their tools, but now coffee... The barista coffee is it. And this is only just preparing you for a series of um, designated smoking areas, sort of 
puddles of, of stubbed out cigarettes all the way down the road and this chain of businesses which are all oxymorons. I started to transcribe them as I came along today. Free cash. Imperial equity. City sheepskins. Responsible gambling. Tapas revolution. Proper hamburgers. And Sainsbury's local when there is no local left. All this is about destroying the idea of locality. The last London is nervous of the local. The local is gone. The local is a gesture. And why is it that in the city, once you go beyond that, this is one of the few places in, in London where free food and drink are handed out, but they're only given to bankers. As you come out of the station, if you're part of this wealth-generating machine, someone will give you a, a free iced tea or a chalk bar. But meanwhile, on the streets all around, around the stations, at the cash machines, waiting under the railway bridges are invisibles and rough sleepers and nobody is bringing them these benefits <laughs> to those that have shall be given. And the city is also becoming a series of quotations of itself. It's cannibalizing itself so rapidly. As you move through the market, what was once the, a vegetable market in Spitalfields, and a really significant interzone between the city and its money-generating machine and the ghetto of Whitechapel, where successive immigrants came, that zone is now altogether captured or reduced to facades. And as you come through the market itself, <clears throat> Hawksmoor's Christchurch has been very delicately framed as a quotation. You walk down the glassed alleyway, and there it is, like a kind of picture, as if that has put it in its place. And the latest chic for all of the shops down there, again, is a sort of poverty chic. It's a kind of designer Orwellism. The first shop I saw was called Urban Decay. And Urban Decay is actually selling high-end lipstick with a complimentary eye makeover. The next shop is called The Broken Down Palace. And this is offering expensive Patagonian sweaters and coloured rucksacks so you can apparently play at being a polar explorer. The final shop called Rag and Bone is, is um, one of those ones where you don't need to look at the prices. It's, a, it's a three, three sweaters on a table at some gigantic thing which you daren't ask. It's like going into a Bond Street art gallery. So Trump, maybe, in all this, is actually somebody to be considered as a good thing because it is so bad that it's become visible. We're dealing with a series of invisibilities and groundlessness. So to have somebody who seems to have focused all of the problems in a cartoon-like comic strip way uh, actually makes that fault line visible. And it, it happened before for me around the, the Thatcher period, which was the beginning of what I think of as this era of the last London. Of course, there have been many Londons. London renews and disappears all the time. But it is a kind of end game now for the particular kind of writing I do. In that sense, it is a last London, and this is a last venture. I used to walk at the time of the Thatcher period um, in Down, Down River. I was writing Down River, 
And really, uh, my whole entree into this particular kind of world came by, by way of the London Review of Books, and particularly somebody who was living locally, um, cultural historian Patrick Wright, who, who I met, and he, he wrote a really fine piece in the LRB about my first novel, Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings. So, so we became friends. And... Uh, we explored the territory together at that time, and he managed to get an entire book out of Dalston Lane. And looking at Dalston Lane now, you know, he, he wasn't wrong. This was, in a way, the kind of a, the experiment, the laboratory in which a particular kind of future was being cooked, and I was pushing off down into the Thames estuary. And going back into the book called Journey Through Ruins, I uh, saw how amazingly pertinent this picking through the dirt of Dalston Lane could be, because this is what Patrick Wright wrote. A smudged deadbeat, he's talking about Donald Trump, a smudged deadbeat left over from the Reagan area and propped up in a temporary kind of way by ailing US and Japanese banks that couldn't afford to let him expire completely. This is 1991. If Trump was in the White House, which, as we were rash enough to hint in those undiminished days, he might well be before too long, then he would follow the examples of President Reagan and Harding, and he would look for his anchorage in the stars. So this was already signaling that we were moving into a kind of occulted world, and Trump was one of those figures that could be conjured up from looking at the future ruins of London and, and doing it by walking and exploring in ways that are sometimes now quite difficult to do. London has flirted always with, with a sense of its own dissolution. London was and is no more. That was John Evelyn writing in 1666 after the Great Fire. Um, and there was a sense of relish there, which was something like I heard on the radio the other morning. I Ian Holloway, the, the manager, he's got a very nice West Country burr of a voice, he was talking about the disaster of Queen's Park Rangers football team. He was saying with great enthusiasm, I think we're really at the crest of the slump. And that's where London is, really, uh, in many ways, at the crest of the slump. But Evelyn wrote in his diary, uh, with my wife and son took coach and went to Bankside in Southwark, where we beheld that dismal spectacle, the whole city in dreadful flames near the waterside, and had now consumed all the houses from the bridge and all of Thames Street and upwards towards Cheapside, down to the Three Cranes, and so returned exceedingly astonished what would become of the rest. Well, what indeed, because that level of destruction allows contemplation of a possible future London, um, the London that Wren would have projected, a rational London, a London laid out in a grid, which London opposed, London's spirit is not there. London is a, is a living entity. That's the first thing you have to acknowledge about London, why it's special and why it may be drawing one of its last breaths or the last breath of a particular cycle. Is that this is there because of its geology and its geography. It's there because of what the Thames does. 
And how out of that sediment crawled something which the Roman uh, invasion in AD 43 and afterwards, it took a good while to London to establish itself. It's a crossing point on the river and out of that mud comes something that's walled in and it becomes a kind of animal form. Every aspect of the city, the stone, the wood, the creatures that live there, the very mud, becomes something living. And it's something that absorbs all of us and needs us and and enters into a a special communication with us, which is kind of broken and threatened by the way we've moved into a digital and electronic world. I mean, navigating any pavement, as you now know, just coming down here, you're swaying through people who are desperately head-plunging into the tiny pool of these screens held out in front of them, as if they were carrying miniature cocktail sausages through the street. And the thing is that staring into these machines, they all look worried. It's as if they can't believe what's on there or it's all wrong. Nobody looks radiantly happy. And the voices are buzzing and echoing and making a city of noise, a kind of cage of noise under the membrane, the dome of, of smoke and corruption that's coming up. But it is living. It's like a library, too. I was reading in, in Iris Murdoch's strange last book um, a description of a room where somebody abandons this house and goes away from his library. And she speaks about the books missing him, that the books are living entities, and they only really come into their own through the persona of the person who engages with them. So actually being in the British Museum is an astonishing kind of engagement with all of the stuff and all of the materials that are in this building and that are talking through us. And the way that we are here bringing so much to bear, so many energies, are something we need to be aware of and to fight and to maintain. And it's not just uh, Jacques Tourneur's Night of the Demon from M.R. James where you pick up a book here and you're cursed for life because it haunts you. Something within that book will follow you onto trains and journeys. There's that too. Every decision to pick up a book is a life-changing moment, potentially. There's also a fear that comes with these moments of of crisis. At the time of the 1666 Great Fire, um, people like Trump look to the stars and the heavens. There's somebody to blame. There's always another. There's an alien, a difference. And and in London, there was a a sense of uh, turning on foreigners and being concerned about river invasion and, and thinking the whole thing was some kind of conspiracy or plot. And that paranoia runs deep. It runs all through English literature, often associated closely with the river itself. So you get a sensationalist writer like Saxe Roma and his, his fear of the Chinese. He um, wrote a book called The Devil Doctor, and it, it's... Uh, 1916, and he says in that, he's, 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 uh, the main character is contemplating Dr. Fu Manchu. He says, a faint perfume hung in the air about me. I do not mean that any essence or any incense, but rather a smell which is suffused by this oriental furniture, by oriental draperies, the indefinable but unmistakable perfume of the East. And thus London had acquired a distinct smell of its own, and the atmosphere surrounding me was horribly eastern. It was rather far eastern, and perhaps I do not make myself very clear, but to me there's a mysterious significance in that perfumed atmosphere. 
So we do have to be aware of these strange foreign atmospheres seeping in. And Fu Manchu himself uh, found his way to, to a Hawksmoor church, to St. Anne's in Limehouse, where there's a pyramid in the grounds which becomes the entrance to a kind of labyrinthine underworld and which therefore kind of initiates into a series of uh, future authors who, Peter Ackroyd, Alan Moore, and so on, who have tapped into the same conspiracies. And something about that is still in the air because on the, I'm very, always a very keen student of new graffiti going up along the canal in Hackney on the Regent's Canal. It's, it's sort of changing like a, a Chinese um, newspaper on the walls every day. And there was, there was one thing which I wrote down in my notebook which said, Shoreditch is the revenge of Fu Manchu. <laughs> I'm not sure what that meant, but it, it sounds suitably paranoid and threatening. This fascination with London's ending, endgame London, um, you go back to the, that crucial moment, I think, you know, really was 1986, was the moment that uh, Margaret Thatcher brings in what Patrick Keeler calls the tyranny of the suburbs, which is this idea that the local councils, GLC, are a nuisance, they're, they're abolished, at the same time, Big Bang opens up the financial markets and uh, financial information becomes on electronic screens, really, for the first time. And the M25 motorway is opened years and years after it should have been, you know, with snipers all surrounding Margaret Thatcher as she cuts the ribbon in this kind of vampiric dance with General Pinochet, who's living on a golf course. So it's a very strange time. And in 1987, Derek Jarman makes his film The Last of England, The Last of England. And it, uh, it features royal weddings, it features the Falklands War, it features grungy, punky street footage, and images, uh, ritualistic images of Millennium Mills and that downriver area that's going to be such an area of dispute in future London. And Jarman's usage of the last of England is obviously invoking or remembering Ford Maddox Brown's uh, painting called The Last of England from 1855, uh, which depicts, he and his wife model for it, and they are em emigrants going to Australia, of which 35,000 were doing that at that time. There was a sense of it was the last London, it was a difficult London, it was time to move, and he, he managed to make both of them look really grim in this. They're buttoned up against the, co the cold, their, their backs to the white cliffs of Dover as the boat sails away, as so many characters in Dickens do, have this sort of expulsion into a possible future world, as indeed uh, the, the term echoed on and on till it reached Derek Jarman. Uh, Ford Maddox Brown's grandson was Ford Maddox Ford, and he wrote uh, an essay called The Future in London in 1909, which had a very pertinent vision of London. And it was a London that he thought was a 60-mile circle. It was one of the first of the London as an orbit, because the original London is this, this walled, Entity, this living beast, this thing on the edge of the river, the port, with its with its uh, 
amphitheatre with its markets, with its bathhouses, with its forum, all of that, a colonized city. And a colonized city created to draw in the scattered tribal folks around into something that starts out really only as a satellite of Colchester. It's seven years before London really develops into anything, and it's AD 100 before London, Londinium is a recognizable entity in any way. And then it's lost, and it's abolished, and it's pulled apart, and it grows again. Ford Maddox Ford's vision is, is so uh, ahead of its time in every kind of sense he sees that Oxford and Cambridge and the coast are all part of this sort of microclimate of a, of a dome across London. He sees the river coming into play as, as a form of transport. He envisages things like escalators and movement. And all the time, the characters of this city are coming from all over Europe. They are, they're a city that's civilized and functioning and remembers the older pastoral sense of England as well. And so there's a kind of interesting lineage there. And the compulsion to find this last London goes, goes on and on. So that in the 1930s, 1932, the philosopher and uh, science fiction writer Olaf Stapleton wrote a book called Last Men in London, in which he um, imagines that... that uh, a future civilization on Neptune living 2,000 million years hence uh, somehow infiltrate the consciousness of someone in, in the London of the, of the First World War. And he finds uh, something that's attractive to me is that the, the, the people there have split in such a way that the, the kind of life into which these abortive supermen gravitated most frequently was a life of wandering and contemplation. Often they became tramps. They drifted from one big town to another, trekking through agricultural districts, tinkering, sharpening scissors, mending crockery, poaching, stealing, breaking stones and harvesting. And the women were more unfortunate than the men, for vagrancy is less easily practiced by women. Well, I thought of this. I thought of this strange possibilities that not only are we animate with the city, we are exchanging our DNA and our molecules with the nature of the city, we're becoming a, a living entity in which we are all part, then uh, I also thought that there is a kind of category of these contemplatives that we hardly notice because we're now, we're now moving so fast. Everything is so speedy, so electronic, so ungrounded and so part of this cloud and so much corrupted a lot of the public language. So that I kind of cooled myself by going to, to find an oasis, a particular oasis near where I live, called Haggerston Park, and trying to think why this space worked so well, how it survived as a kind of time capsule, and what were its qualities. It's, part of its qualities are, are its enclosure. It has very, very high brick walls on several sides, and these are there because it used to be a gasworks, Imperial Coke and Gasworks. And that was until the 1940s when a V2 rocket hit one of the gas holders and destroyed a whole tranche of the gasworks and also the small network of streets 
that was all around. And so, like much of London, it stayed in a limbo for quite a time. And then in the 1950s, in 56, it was proposed that they would turn this ground into a park. Um, without a lot of the agenda that you would now get, it was, it was quite modestly done. And by 1958, it opened. And the architect of the park, the designer, had been a naval architect. And what he did, quite um, subtly, and it doesn't bang you over the head with it, but the park is shaped to become a boat. That there's, there's an end with a deck on it and a high platform above the deck, the bridge, and it looks down the park towards the sort of ice dentures of the city on the horizon. You see that gleaming in front of you. There's a, a great sundial. It's the ship's compass. There's a mast, and there are curved bricks that represent lifeboats. A lot of the central area of the park is built up high on the rubble because London is also, the geology of London is a hybrid form. It's not only the natural geology, but it's also the geology of all of the layers of civilization and destruction that have gone in. They now com combine into a new form of geology with all of the scraps and bones and pieces and detritus of previous lives. And that too becomes the park. And then there are strange declivities and I asked the park keeper yesterday what these were. And he's somebody who stayed in the same place for 30 years. And he said, well, those used to be sunbathing pits. We wanted it to be really like a cruise liner. And after the Olympics, part of the Olympic flim-flam in 2012 was that a lot of silver birch trees were planted on absurd places like the roof of Selfridges, but only for a couple of weeks. So it all looked great. And then when that was over, they said, get rid of them. And he put in to have them. So he's made a sort of mystical circle of, of silver birch trees around one of these holes in the ground. And then there's a stone circle, which nobody's ever explained, of sort of concrete blocks. And that was the remains of one of the parts of the gasworks. So that, that thing, which is like a boat and like a private garden and like an enclosure, has such a magical particular atmosphere. And that draws in these people, these invisibles I was talking about, the ones that you don't notice. Because a lot of people are just rushing straight through the park to get somewhere else. But then there are people that stick there. And I noticed at the end of the park, on, on the area, like a cloister beneath the bridge of it, looking dead south, exactly towards the ship's compass, this figure appeared of a, a man I began to call the Vegetative Buddha, because he, he went in there the minute the park opened at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning, and he stayed there until it closed at night, and he never moved one step. And he looked like he'd just come back from one of Shackleton's boats. He sort of seemed to be rhymed in ice, even, even in high summer. He's in layers and layers of clothes, and his large legs were like rings on a tree, and you wondered if he actually could move, but he was there, and he was a marker. And all the time the people are spinning past him and he doesn't see them. And he's got a bag beside him which has got on it every little helps. And so every day I see him and I kind of uh, get an enhanced sense of my own self as a, as a person moving through the city and in a narrative negotiation with the city by seeing his presence. And you feel that he doesn't see you or need to see you. He doesn't need to move. I'm neurotically surging off on epic journeys, gathering in all kinds of bits of information, taking photographs, stumbling back at the end of it, and there he is. And so I, I was 
kind of strangely comforted by him, but also aware, of course, that he's, he's one of the kind of damaged of the city, that he's not there because this is only a beautiful place to be, but he's there because he can't be anywhere else. And um, noticing him, then sitting nearby, I also kind of noticed the people that absolutely would not see him because there are these people in the kind of electronic city, the, the, the real and the unreal, the digital and the actual. Um, and I noticed first these two on the big central path coming towards each other, and I thought they were mother and daughter because they, were both, they both had blonde hair, they were both laughing, they were both chattering, they had their arms up, and they came towards them, and I thought, this is nice. They're quite surprised to met each other, and they just came, and then they just passed. And I realized they were both just talking into their phones, and they had nothing to do with each other. They just passed. You go a little further, and there's a, a scrub wood with a sort of a little hidden bench at the back of it. And every morning, um, school kids, probably from the academy, uh, are on this bench in sort of a, a fevered embrace before they get to school. But I notice that despite this, both of them over each other's shoulder are texting furiously. And they're kind of ultimately together in this sort of magic moment, and yet they're, they're totally separate. On the edge of the scrub wood is a single tree, almost bare of, of leaves. And one morning going past there, I see this other person who is like, like the vegetative Buddha. <clears throat> he's, a, he's a black guy, and he, he has no shoes on, and he's completely rigid, as if he turned to a statue, just staring at something. It's like, like is the final brain communication from Neptune. It's something there. And he, again, is, is absolutely immobile, as if he has drunk this essence of the city. And on the edge of the woods beyond it is a strange carved wooden mask, a kind of voodoo mask on the edge of the wood. And he has found his place. He's found the spot on the city he has to be, and nothing is going to move him. And there are those uh, loud earth um, leaf-blowing machines roaring right past him. He doesn't stir. And I'm, I'm impressed by that, by the, the way these two things operate against each other. And then on my doorstep, just yesterday, I see eight people uh, in the long coats, sort of slightly Trumpish coats, all with clipboards. And this doesn't look like good news. This looks council. I can, and so um, my wife went outside and asked and, and talks to them. You know, said, "What are you doing?" And they said, "Oh, oh, we're um, we're um, a council training exercise." And she said, "Yeah, but what what are you what are you doing?" And said, "Well, well, we're looking <clears throat> to see what would happen if we cut all the trees down." And she said, "But there aren't any trees." And she said, I know, it's only a training exercise. <laughs> What's happening um, on the fringe of this, because once upon a time, that park um, was actually a, a, a basin for the, the, the barges bringing coal along the canal. So the canal is also very important. But to take in this sort of sense of the, the animate nature of London, the living nature of the city, 
I decided to uh, walk through the whole night around the Overground Railway. I'd done a, a walk with Andrew Cotting, filmmaker, around the, all the stations on the circuit of the Overground Railway in a single day a while back. And uh, at the end of this, he, he'd um, been going back on his motorbike to Hastings, and he'd been in a terrible accident on the Old Kent Road. He'd nearly lost his leg, fountained blood. Um, a Polish policewoman rescued him and did all the right stuff, saved his leg. He dropped into a kind of black hole of consciousness. And it was a, it was a long time before, before he recovered. But when, he, when he'd recovered, he also wanted to sort of exercise this experience. So we decided we would walk through the night, right around the whole railway in the reverse direction. Because being at night, uh, walking through the night is sort of, in a sense, it's like a kind of drunkenness. It's, everything is slightly soft and strange. You might tumble over with exhaustion at any moment, but the city is talking to you in a different way, and you can actually feel the ripple of the communal dream as you move from area to area to area to area. So we got right... I won't bore you with the whole story, but we came right round the city until we got back to the hospital where Andrew had been taken uh, on the south side, uh, up at Denmark Hill. And uh, we went into this hospital completely unchallenged, with huge rucksacks, very dirty, and, and had a mysterious hour just wandering through this night hospital um, and uh, really touching into to this, that sense of the struggle for the hospitals to continue, and yet the, the sense that by going back there, somehow he was entering into the lost black time that he'd made in this accident. And it was night when we went in, and when we emerged, the sun was rising in the east over the river. And it was, it was a completely magical moment. So that I talked to him about something strange that we'd seen at the beginning of this walk, which was as we set off from Kingsland Road, on the bench, uh, maybe a couple of hundred yards from Haggerston Park, the man from the park was now sitting on a bench on Kingsland Road, a sort of a night bench, now part of that kind of swirl of hipster hackney in a strange way, but equally invisible. And I was telling him, Andrew, the story of this, so that when we finished our walk, 10 o'clock the next morning, we went back, I dragged him across to Haggerston Park. We went back into Haggerston Park, and sure enough, there he was, sitting there. And he had, Andrew uh, had a, GoPro camera on his head. So he goes past this man, makes a slow tracking shot past this man. And uh, I kind of realized in that moment this was a mistake. You know, this is, some, this is a way, one, of sucking him out of one form of reality into another. And secondly, that I was going to have to write about it. And this was, this was also forbidden. Something was wrong with it. So we went back. I went back when, when we'd had a sleep and I'd had um, breakfast and uh, woke up, came, tidied up, and went, went back out to that park, and he was gone. And he never reappeared. And uh, I asked the park keeper yesterday about it, and he didn't know what had happened. And I was, I was kind of disturbed by that. I mean, it was, I suppose it was something that was inevitably going to happen. But the association of the... The two forms of the city, the kind of mobility, the neurotic mobility of endlessly questing and dragging and colonizing, and the ability to sit and contemplate, seemed to be into some sort of quite dramatic conjunction at that point. After uh, maybe two months, I was coming 
in the winter now, I'm coming back through the park at the same time early in the afternoon, and I see, ah, he's come back. It looked exactly the same, but he, this figure is not sitting in exactly the same spot, because I've looked very closely at the spot where this guy sat all this time, and it is kind of a strangely stained, as if body liquors have drifted out of him somehow. And there's a, a crude um, crucifix was carved into the wood behind him. So nobody sits there, nobody's sat there. But the end of the bench, a little bit further down the deck, as it were, is another steerage-class passenger who looks just like Ford Maddox Brown's wrapped-up figure huddled against the white cliffs. And I think it's the same man come back, as if he's, he's lost, lost a sort of degree of weight, but he's still got the same. And then I see he's much younger, and then I see he's black. It's a, it's a different person, but he's doing the same thing. He's, he's recognized something about this place that means so much. And he's there for a shorter time. He's, he comes all day, but he, then he goes. It's as if he's, he's not in the state where he's going to become a vegetable presence. And then uh, his spot is taken by a rough sleeper in an Arsenal football bag. And so on and on, one after another, people turn up to be there. And I suppose equally, one after another, people turn up to walk around the city and to become part of that. And that is the nature of this idea of a last London. It's a fugitive city. It's a city of reinvention. And it's a city, in a sense, divided against itself. I think what's happened what I've discovered at the end of all of these journeyings is that um, the centre in some ways has got hollowed out. It's, it's lost its integrity in lots of ways. So much of it is empty. So much of it is owned as, as an investment rather than um, for living. And the, the projection of the new city is split into two hemispheres. There's Olympicopolis, there's the Olympic city in the east around Newham and Stratford, built around the germ of the Westfield Supermall, and there's now one on the west, from Wilsdon, Old Oak Common, running down towards Shepherd's Bush, around another Westfield, as if these two parasitical forms will build up into a new city, a new city, but a divided city, probably connected by Crossrail, who are determined to burrow under everything, because the one thing you don't really need planning permission for us to go down. So there are these vertical strokes everywhere. Um, there's, there's a very good book called Vertical by Stephen Graham, and if I can probably can't find his bit, but it's, it's, it addresses all these, these notions of a city covered from the drone, the level of drones that are watching us. This was the great thing about the Olympics. They said it looks very good from the air. <laughs> And where does the utopianism in thinking about the city come from? This is, this is uh, something that was produced. It wasn't by Abercrombie, I'll tell you afterwards. It said, um, most of England's industrial settlements grew up a long time ago when nobody thought about town planning. Residential housing and factories of all kinds are therefore to be found right next to one another. In many cases, a tangled clutter has developed posing considerable difficulties where contemporary standards of hygiene and the demands of public transport are considered. Furthermore, the conditions of the buildings in most of the old areas of workers' housing has reached such a catastrophic state 
that hardly any of these old towns can be spared from the slum problem. By this is meant the problem of providing, which we must concern ourselves with, new humane housing for many tens of thousands of people, while at the same time separating industrial and residential quarters and creating an adequate transport network. Towns are typified by the cloud of smoke that is constantly lying over them. Uh, that was a report by the Nazi party. It was part of the German invasion plans for GB, issued in a portfolio in 1940. London is an attractive proposition to so many, and it's wonderful in that it's been so re-energized constantly until we've, we've reached this, uh, this critical condition, I think, whereby language has been so corrupted... Um, you can't really have a dust cart without an upbeat message on it. It's as if every litter bin in London has been dressed by Catherine Hammett. I started to list a few of these things that I've just found in my own locality. This, this, is, this is it. This is wonderful. They're transforming waste. Built to outperform. Working for a better tomorrow. Investing in the walking environment. Putting people first. Creating space to inspire. Just enough is more. Great. <laughs> Our property knowledge gives you power. Turning ideas into business. Transforming and restoring lives. A home for everyone. World leader in paintball. Thieves beware, working in partnership with Hackney Council. <laughs> Own a piece of East London heritage. CCTV cameras installed for the purpose of crime. <laughs> Delivering good decisions. Investing in competitiveness. Impossibility is nothing. Hackney is more interesting than history. That's true. And on the canal, on the canal, the world actually becomes visible in a strip of ground closer than that. When I first moved, moved into Hackney in the 1960s, and I was doing odd uh, labouring jobs in Limehouse and in, in Whitechapel, it wasn't possible to get onto the canal. The canal was still a, really a working zone with woodyards and factories of every kind, narrowboats going up and down. You couldn't get onto it. It was therefore very attractive, and it was, it was uh, often something to sneak onto and explore London. Uh, then came the period when it was opened up in, in the 70s, and uh, the land was then colonized by fishermen, rough fishermen, because there were still fish in the water. After the period of Olympic development, there's, there's nothing in the water. The water is dead. You know, the large fish we used to see, the eels that were coming out are gone. But in any case, these fishermen couldn't be on the canal bank because it's turned into a, a sort of peloton for cyclists. It's a, it's a frenzied crowd of hundreds of cycles pour down this very narrow track because it's not a road, competitively with um, the joggers of the city, with this demographic of, uh, of very fit, very early people. And that makes it a, an extremely conflicted space to walk through. But I, I still basically do it because it is so much a part of the story. 
And the things you see with that, that uh, near Victoria Park, I saw that the two worlds collide when, when two young mothers, both texting and tweeting and talking with other kids. There was the young kid on a cycle was just playing about, and then there's a ramp down to the river. She got onto that ramp, and it just went, and she couldn't stop, and bloop, straight into the water. Luckily, there's a, someone on a narrowboat was just coming off with his bicycle, and he swooped down and caught her by the hair. A little further on down the canal, just as it goes into a, underneath a bridge, the whole peloton swooped through, and one guy with one of those very, very thin-wheeled bicycles just went straight into the water himself. And I, I, the peloton did not stop for him. It's a ruthless thing, that peloton. <laughs> so I helped to pull him out. And uh, I, the weight, the bicycle was that. It was nothing. He wasn't concerned about his bicycle. He was desperate for his phone. So we're kind of patting him down to get the phone. And, uh, and two walkers, two ordinary walkers at that moment passed, and they were kind of hysterical. They'd never been there before, never seen anything like this. So they, they were pushed, one was pushed back under a thorn bush, and one was trembling on the edge of the water. So I started to uh, record the voices that were going around there, these, these kind of uh, the babble of electronic voices, and it was all so's. It's <laughs> so... Ideally, that works for you, basically, the 22nd of September. So, the problem is I don't know any proper men. All I know is women. So, it might be an idea if you speak to the concierge. So, take them in. I've got a whole fridge of fruit. So, he's a chocolate maker, and that's very exciting. So, dancing with a dog? Yeah, honestly, a dog. So, I said, so he said I should get Botox. So I'm applying for a U.S. teaching visa, but then I'm also going to apply for a German one, just in case. So they're raised in incubators all over the country, but once they mate, they mate for life, because Boris is behind all that. <laughs> People are so hungry, they're starving. It's like sex on your wedding night. So, Uber to Shoreditch House cost eight quid. I've got a lot more to say about the last London, but... Um, Time is uh, fading away and, and running out. And um, I think again of John Evelyn uh, and something else he wrote. I went again to the ruins, for it was no longer a city. Uh, is London still a city? I, I think it is. I think the traces of the previous city are here, um, a couple of days back, I was quite astonished. I went to the Guildhall Art Gallery to look at some um, particular London paintings I wanted to look at, and, and then the realisation that this amphitheatre is there, the, the actual Roman amphitheatre, traces of it. Uh, you just walk down, and the atmosphere is really chilling and disturbing. And the, the mock-up of the amphitheatre is covered with figures that look like they're out of Francis Bacon or Mybridge, these naked, wrestling figures moving about ghost presences. Because it is a city of ghosts. And what we do, any of us, is just pick up on the whispers of ghosts who've passed through before. The, the, the quote that I began my whole writing pitch with in working as a gardener in Limehouse in 1975 was... Uh, the living can assist the imagination of the dead, which is W.B. Yeats, and I think that's all we do. We just assist, tap into 
voices that were there before we follow the ghosts who are with us. I heard just before I came down to give this talk tonight that uh, a poet, one of the fine London poets called Tom Rayworth, uh, died two, two days ago. Uh, and that put me back, too, to the start of when I was trying to write about London. And I'd been living in Ireland and um, living on the island of Gozo for three months. I'd worked on a, on a book uh, which was in small chunks of prose which dealt with memories of uh, what had gone on in Dublin but also with fictional projections so that you're in a kind of hybrid form of fiction and documentation. And I ju just about pleased myself with the end of this book. Got back to London, went to, I guess it would have been Indica Bookshop in Southampton Row at that time, and saw this book by someone called Tom Rayworth called Serial Biography. And I picked it up and I'd read about two pages when I just chucked mine into a suitcase where it's been ever since. Because he's, he's been a, a great influence for me and a, a sense of such a sharp intelligence, such a sharp and swift intelligence. And so I'd like, and a London presence in the best way, so I'd like really to, to dedicate the talk to him and to just finish up with a paragraph from that book a serial biography. I cannot drown. I am shockproof, fireproof, immune to disease. I believe in what we do. I speak many languages. Air hostesses of all nationalities have served me. They remember my face. I'm in here somewhere, feeling a bit turn in the feeling the bit turn in the brickwork, covered with a hard surface of purpose. They cannot reach me. Suspecting I am only a machine they are afraid to dissect because of the secret, torture gardens, scenic railways. I go where they send me to destroy or steal, to use or persuade. We went to the park and lost our way, came out of a different exit, and we walked off in the wrong direction. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open.